And my theme this morning is going to be the three great movements of redemption history. And we're going to be speaking from the book of Exodus. My very dear friend Anne Barclay came up to me this morning and quoted to me the words of the Athenian mob after the Apostle Paul had spoken on the Erepagus. They said, who is this babbler of strange things? And I thought that was rather funny. So we're going to babble about some strange things. Shall we pray? For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of Scripture we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant us to live in harmony with one another so that together with one voice we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In preparing for today, I chose the two really quite beautiful readings we have just had um, to frame what I intend to say, but I will not be speaking specifically to those readings. The wonderful Old Testament story of redemption, and in speaking about it, I'm going to be drawing upon everybody's knowledge of the story of the book of Exodus, which for many of us takes us back to our Sunday school years. The story is like a beautiful diamond that has various facets and each facet reveals an aspect of God's wondrous grace which when viewed together produces a shining luminescence of matchless beauty. Matchless for, as we have heard from the Apostle Peter, we have been ransomed from our futile ways not with perishable things such as silver and gold but with the precious blood of Christ. Holy Scripture from beginning to end uses the word blood as a synonym for the giving of life or for a life laid down in substitutionary sacrifice. The Hebrews of ancient times would immediately interpret the use of the word blood to mean sacrificial death, a life laid down as a substitute and the Hebrews' mind would immediately go to the tabernacle in the wilderness and the daily functions of the priest at the bronze altar of sacrifice. The book of Exodus is the record of redemption. It contains three great movements in the story of redemption, and those three movements are, firstly, redeemed from the house of bondage, secondly, redeemed to be a holy nation, and thirdly, redeemed to be a dwelling place for God. And I will deal briefly with each of them by way of reminder as they are recorded for our encouragement and our hope. So firstly, redeemed from the house of bondage. And I will just make a few points about this. Point one, the people of the Exodus were redeemed Firstly, by the blood of the sacrificial Passover lamb, the story we all know well. But secondly, they were redeemed by mighty acts of power. Exodus chapter 6 says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Next point, redemption was the work of a mediator 
who stood between God and the people, Moses, the most complete Old Testament type of Christ. He was the mediator of the Old Covenant, as our Lord Jesus is the mediator of the New Covenant under which we live. During their centuries in Egypt, sadly, the Hebrew people were not faithful to the worship of their God. They worshipped the false gods of Egypt. And Joshua said to them, Put away the false gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve only the Lord. God's deliverance of them, therefore, was not predicated upon their faithfulness, but upon his unconditional covenant which he made with Abram, Isaac and Jacob over 400 years before. In Exodus, God said to Moses, I appeared to Abram, Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty and I have remembered my covenant. In like manner, it was not because of anything that we had done to elicit God's favour, but as the Roman epistle teaches us, even whilst we were yet sinners, yet Christ died for us. Redemption for the Hebrews was by grace, through faith, for all who trusted in God's promise of the protection of the sacrificial blood of the Passover lamb sprinkled on their doorposts. No doubt many non-Hebrews who witnessed the great contest between Jehovah and the gods of Egypt were convinced of the great power of the God of the Hebrews. Moses' name was famous throughout all the land of Egypt and in the account of the Exodus we are told that there was a great mixed multitude that left Egypt. The terrible destruction of the Egyptian nation caused by the plagues is a graphic depiction of God's judgment of sin. God said, On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. The Hebrew people were redeemed from the bondage of Pharaoh, from the judgment of Pharaoh, and from the power of Pharaoh with his army to keep them in subjection. And when that vast multitude stood on freedom's side of the Red Sea and looking back saw Pharaoh's army perished, Moses sang a song of great joy. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. And the Apostle Paul says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. That's point one, redeemed from bondage through the blood of the Lamb and mighty acts of power. Secondly, redeemed to be a holy nation. When the great mixed multitude left Egypt, they were a conglomerate, an ill-defined amalgam, a vast number of disconnected peoples. They were certainly not a nation. This mixed multitude needed a new status, a new orientation, a new future. We are now, for the first time, introduced to a new term in the Bible, the word sanctify. It means to be holy and set apart. And God said to Moses, sanctify the people. 
it was God's intention to formally sanctify and set apart this redeemed people as his own holy nation. The second aspect of redemption history is of equally great importance as the much better known Passover. In our first reading, we heard from Deuteronomy, has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another by a mighty hand and by great and awesome deeds? Now this great multitude have arrived at the Mount of Sinai and Moses actually ascends the mountain at least eight times engaging in what could best be called, for those who remember Henry Kissinger, shuttle diplomacy. On two occasions, Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. On Moses' first ascent, detailed in Exodus 19, he learned that God desired to enter into a covenant, a legally binding document, with this vast multitude. What unfolds is a majestic divine drama. Moses came down and set before all the elders what God had said, and after consultation with all the people, they answered unanimously that they wished to proceed. Moses again ascended a second time to God with a report of the people's reply, and thus began an extremely solemn process. On the morning of the third day, after arriving at Sinai, with the sound of the trumpets and the mountain wrapped in smoke, with terrifying thunder and fire and the earth shaking, the people were absolutely terrified and were told on the pain of death not to approach the mountain of God. Why was this? Well, it was because... A prisoner may be set free from his chains and able to rejoin society, but this does not give him the right to enter the very throne room of his sovereign and approach. To do so requires a change of status. The fact is that God must be approached only on his own terms. How sad it is to hear people say, I'm just as good as all those hypocrites who go to church. If they can get into heaven, so will I. The fact is, it's nothing to do with goodness or performance and has everything to do with relationship. The question is, are you a member of the covenant people through faith in Jesus Christ? Whilst on the mountain the fourth time with Aaron, Moses received the various laws which he wrote in a book and relayed all of God's words to the vast assembly. They then confirmed their acceptance of the covenant with these solemn words. They said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. This was an extremely solemn occasion. Moses built an altar at the base of the mount and set up twelve pillars of stone, one for each of the tribes of Israel, and then ratified this solemn covenant with blood of sacrificed animals. With such a solemn occasion, God declared this mixed multitude to be a holy nation separated unto him. 
and to demonstrate this monumental change in relationship, Moses, for the fifth time, with 73 of the elders, was called into the presence of God, and no longer was there any fear, but only fellowship. For it says in the book of Exodus, And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand upon the chief men of Israel. They beheld God, and they sat with him and ate and drank. Once there was fear, do not approach the mountain. Now there is complete access and fellowship, a change of relationship. The covenant at Sinai produced a radical change. How was this achieved? Through a mediator, Moses, through the blood of the covenant, and by grace through faith. It should be noticed that through all this drama of the exodus and the sanctification of the nation at Sinai, no priest was involved. Up till this time, there was no priesthood. And now that they have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and constituted and sanctified a holy nation before God on the basis of the blood of the covenant, now for the first time we are introduced to a high priest. And that brings us to the third point, redeemed as a dwelling place for God. In the symbolism of the Old Testament, the role of the mediator is now completed. The people have been redeemed and sanctified, and Moses is now called up to the mountain of Nebo, where God shows him all the promised land, and there he dies. On the Mount of Nebo, the most humble man in all the world, after all of his trials and rejection, laid down his life freely and died. And many centuries later, an even more humble man, on another mountain, rejected by his people, gave up his life and died. The focus of the national life now centres on a tabernacle and the ministry of a high priest. Our Lord Jesus did not become a high priest until after his death and resurrection and glorification. During his life on earth, he was a mediator of a new covenant and he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These distinctions are very important and the origins of them are found in the Genesis account. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering from everyone whose heart prompts them to give, and let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. In Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and move amongst them and they shall be my people. The many laws and rituals which constituted the covenant, including the function of the tabernacle, were the oracles of God that expressed his glory 
and with a national constitution, a compass and an anchor that sustained and preserved the Israelites through their many centuries of trial. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 35 and 36 says that even if the heavens were to dissolve, the lights of the stars and the moon not to shine, even then Israel shall never cease to be a nation before me. They were only, the laws were only binding on Israel and they contained within them indications of a far superior person than Moses yet to come and a far superior covenant. Before his ascension, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, This is what I told you whilst I was still with you, that everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. The laws of Moses were very beautiful. For what great nation is there that has a God so near? And what great nation is there that has statutes and ordinances so righteous as all these laws which I set before you this day? King David said in his Psalms, Open thou mine eyes, O Lord, that I may behold wondrous things from thy law. The Lord did contain wondrous things. And one of the most wonderful things I've ever read in the law of Moses is this. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as a native-born person such as you. You must love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord. The ministry of the tabernacle and the high priest had nothing to do with salvation, but only fellowship and worship. The people had been saved and sanctified through the ministry of a mediator. Now they enjoyed the daily assurance of their relationship with God through the presence and the ministry of a high priest. Redemption from bondage was for all who sheltered under the Passover blood, but only a consecrated covenant people can enjoy the fellowship of a high priest who represents them and continually advocates for them before God. A sinner stands in need of a saviour, but a saint, a redeemed saint, enjoys the moment-by-moment advocacy of a high priest and the abiding presence of God amongst them. Although redeemed and sanctified, yet sin was still an ever-present reality, and so provision was made through the sin offering and the trespass offering and the great day of atonement for the forgiveness of sin. The sin offerings and the day of atonement were not for salvation, but for cleansing and renewal. But, as we all know, the New Testament teaches us that the continual daily rituals of the tabernacle never solved the problem of sin. Its ministrations only provided a covering, an atonement. But we live under a far superior covenant 
with superior promises. The exceeding excellence of our Saviour's death and its influence in the lives of all who trust in him cannot be exaggerated. The Apostle Paul says, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The writer to the Hebrews says, For by a single offering Christ has perfected for all time those who are sanctified in him. And again, the writer to the Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our gospel is altogether glorious, as indeed is our Saviour, who is its author and perfecter. Paul would say, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. In Christ we have been declared completely justified and perfected in his presence, not through our own efforts, but through his wondrous grace. We are clothed in his righteousness, and before us lies a cloudless sky an inexpressible hope. We have been born anew through the living and abiding word of God and that word is the good news which from apostolic times has been preached to us. To summarise, we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ for Christ our Passover lamb has been slain. We have been sanctified by the blood of Christ and have become members of a royal priesthood and a holy nation. We have free access through grace to the moment-by-moment advocacy of our great high priest, who sits at the right hand of God in the heavenly tabernacle. Through his shed blood, we have forgiveness of our sins and the promise of God because of the infinite value of that offering is, I will remember their sins no more, nor their misdeeds. It is grace that trains us to renounce worldly passions and to live sober, upright and godly lives in this world. Do we call him Lord? Then, as children of the living God, our lives should be devoted to bringing glory to his name. Why? Because he is our Heavenly Father. Beloved brethren, let us therefore hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, and whatever we do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.